0: photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time
1: they're now converted into basically mathematical shapes and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape
0: good evening listeners
2: good evening listeners good evening listeners it is the 21st of july 2019 and you're tuned in to 88.7 kbvr corvallis It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode
1: of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Daniel Watkins. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, Check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration
2: Dissemination is recorded live and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, our guest is Catherine Lasden, who is a master's student in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, mentored by Dr. Suzanne Brander and Dr. Scott Heppel. Thank you for joining us tonight.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So we're going to get into your research that focuses a lot on microplastics in fish and quantifying the abundances of plastics in marine organisms and how that can eventually lead its way up the food web. But before we unpack that that food web, let's focus on plastics just by themselves. So do plastics last forever like we've been kind of told?
0: Uh, the plastics do last forever, but they don't last in the same form that they originally started in. So you can have a plastic bottle or say a summertime plastic chair for the beach that can go down to sizes of, um, like microns, which is less than you can see with your eyesight.
2: So it, but it starts out in these rather large fragments, you know, so, uh, one of the examples that we used in the blog is, you know, the, uh, the, the, pieces of a fishing net that you can kind of see little strands floating in the air, or sorry, floating in the water, Um, but they do degrade. So what happens when they degrade?
0: Yeah, so um, specifically with the ocean, when they degrade, they get smaller and smaller, either through the sun or through hitting other rocks, um, or even as fish bite into them. And as they can get smaller and smaller, they can land in the water column, land on or in animals um, through ingestion, but also they can land in the sand, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, So you can pick up a scoop of sand at the bottom of the ocean no matter where you are in the world and you will have microplastic pieces in your hand.
1: So this is something I've actually experienced. So if you go down to the beach anywhere, you can walk along and with a sieve, you can find little fragments and you'll find little beads. These are the things that are the raw materials for plastic manufacturing. So they are everywhere. But when I went, I found a shotgun shell. I found a bit of a bottle. It was just like the plastic part at the end of the shotgun shell. I found bits of water bottles, found little things that looked kind of like glass, but were scratched enough to see plastic. But I found all of the colors of the rainbow within 15 or 20 minutes.
0: Yeah, it's it's really sad. Um, We tend to see the most colors are kind of black and blue, gray or white, potentially. Um, And a thought of that is potentially clothing or fishing gear. Uh, bottles tend to be clear or white colored, but you can find, I mean, think of what plastic makes it's every color and everywhere.
1: And I imagine that some colors don't last quite as long when they're going under chemical weathering. Yeah, that's correct. I'm thinking about the way that signs look in the window of a store after they've been left there for this whole summer.
0: Yeah. It's, it's crazy that just the sun itself can do so much damage but also if people think it's a positive thing with plastics because like we said before you can have this huge bottle that the plastic the sun can just kind of disintegrate or break down um, and it can go from you know a coke bottle to the size of your fingernail or less in a few years.
2: So as you described how plastics come in a multitude of colors and sizes and shapes uh, I'm thinking back to a National Geographic magazine article that your advisor uh, was actually quoted in Um, And in that article, it has a photo side-by-side of all these living organisms that are really pretty colors, really interesting shapes, some are translucent, and then next to it is a photograph of plastics that also are semi-translucent, all kinds of colors, and they look almost like like living organisms, so it makes sense that these fish are ingesting plastics. So my question to you is, what happens if a fish starts eating plastic by accident or on purpose?
0: Yeah, so a lot of fish will eat plastics without necessarily knowing it because they think it looks like a zooplankton in the water, or the go-to example is uh, plastic bags look like jellyfish to like sea turtles. But when plastic is ingested, it can release chemicals that are made made in the plastic itself, but it can also pick up other chemicals, um, and it can block passageways just like with humans. It can block your esophagus. It can get into tissue and cause damage and scars, just like in people if you have something sharp that you eat. But it can also um, then limit kind of the energy budget of the animal. So if you think that you're eating good food and you have so much energy, but then you can't actually digest and process this plastic, so you can't use energy for more feeding, for swimming and for reproduction, and the fish is kind of just, they don't really know what to do. I
1: guess I think of what would happen if you spent all day eating zero-calorie snacks. You would think (laughs) that you were full, But you're going to start to feel your energy tank.
0: Exactly. And they just don't know any better. And it's just there. Um, And a lot of times, especially if it's clear, they can't necessarily see it because fish, depending on which fish it is, don't have as good enough developed eyes or the size of them even. So it could look like it's nothing and they could just be thinking it's water and swimming or it could be, like I said, a plastic bag that looks like a jellyfish and they're just gulping it up.
1: Right. And they don't really have a... Choice of whether they're going to filter water because other—that's how they get oxygen. Exactly, exactly. So, does eating plastic affect fish at different life stages in different ways?
0: That's a good question. It's still kind of being determined, but um, yes, it can. I mean, if you think of if you have a juvenile fish that could be only a couple centimeters in length, and then they eat a piece of plastic that's a couple millimeters in length, that ratio is huge. And it can possibly get stuck in the animal. It could possibly pass through the animal, which is what we hope. But we don't know. It could pass through uh, different linings in the stomach and land in the tissue of the cell, or sorry, of the fish. Or um, it could get stuck and cause problems, and it could pre- prevent them from eating. Um, and just there's so many unknowns, especially with plastic ingestion.
1: So it's a bit of a complicated path going from. Uh, a fish that's in the ocean to a sample in your lab. Could you take us a little bit on the pathway that you that it goes from from the sample in the ocean to what gets done to it to find these plastics?
0: Yeah, so I'm looking at Sebasti's melanops, which is a black rockfish common off the Oregon coast, and they're close to shore. And uh, we get our samples kind of in, I guess, three different ways. So, the adults I either get from Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, thank you very much, by the way, <laughs> um, and they give me full fish caught from right outside Marine Reserves, um, just frozen and brought to my lab, and then I also get fish from off Newport uh, with the charter company, and people will pay to go fish and then get them flayed, and I get the remaining of uh, the carcass. So we have to dissect the fish, so we take out uh, the GI tract, so we take the um, Esophagus, stomach, small intestine, which is called the pyloric cica, and the large intestine. And then we have to digest that out as well. So we cut that out into small pieces. We stick it into a mason jar. Mason jars are really hard to look at any other way now. Um, <laughs> and mix it with a chemical that, uh, with potassium hydroxide, and that just helps break down the organic matter. And we stick it in a water bath to help speed up the process. Then we have to sieve each sample. So we use a one millimeter and a 63 micron sieve, and then we vacuum everything. Um, and that, every step, we look for plastics and remove them if we see them.
1: What do you mean by vacuum everything?
0: Sorry. So the rest of the remaining liquid, we put in the Buchner funnel and vacuum so that we can get as small as we possibly can microplastics that so are left in the sample.
1: So does that just accelerate the way that it would evaporate off of it and leave the solid parts
0: um it's ju- yeah so it you dump it through um, um a filter and mm-hmm. then it just pulls all the liquid through and leaves oh, all the solids okay. up to a certain size
2: yeah if you didn't vacuum it it, it would kind of just stay liquidy soup without anything actually filtering for days yeah for weeks that would probably make your lab smell glorious
0: oh it smells you- glorious all the time <laughs> but yeah yeah yeah
2: <laughs> Okay, so let's take a a tiny step back, and um, I'm really curious, how does your research fit into these rockfish and marine preserves off the coast of Oregon?
0: Yeah, so rockfish are really important commercially and recreationally. Like I said, a lot of people go on charter companies and just catch them to eat them for food. They are actually quite uh, yummy. I have tried them from the same charter company.
2: They are really good. Rockfish are absolutely delicious. Yeah, they're really good.
0: Um, but they are also found really common. So there are several species off our coast and the blacks just tend to be what we catch most often, which is why we focus on black ones. Um, but the reason we're looking kind of spatially in reserves and outside of reserves or close to the reserve and then other location, because you can't take adults from inside the reserves is because we want to see if there is potentially a comparison with reserves should help with longevity of life. But if they are living longer, does that mean that they are bioaccumulating more plastic because water plastic is in the water um, versus fish that are in Newport that might not live as long, but they might have less exposure to plastics to be ingested.
2: And because I study all terrestrial things, I'm not familiar with marine uh, reserves. So tell us more about them.
0: Yeah. So um, marine reserves, they're found all over the world. Oregon, I think, had them in 2000. Well, was when they first came about um, and they have several different purposes but uh, we have no take reserves so it's supposed to just help with um, seeing if it can help with longevity, um, seeing if it can help, sorry, seeing if it can help with longevity, if it can help with uh, rebuilding different stocks of fish, kind of all that good stuff.
2: So it's, it's meant to be a kind of long-term plan to keep these fish protected so they can't be hunted. There's no ocean development in these areas. Kind of giving them, a, I guess as the name implies, a, a space to kind of be on their own and feel a smaller impact due to humans than otherwise. Correct. Yeah. So this is a paradox, right? Because if fish can hang out in these in these zones, then they could potentially be living longer and maybe healthier lives, but with that longer life, they could be eating more plastic. So paradoxically, those that are around marine preserves may have more plastic in the system just because of the length of time that they're alive?
0: Correct. It's also, so reserves, depending on where they are, if they're closer to uh, big cities, they could have more plastic just from where they are. If they're more of a pristine area, there could be less plastics. Also fish don't just sit there, they also move. So you can have a fish that could be in the reserve one minute and then they could leave the reserve and a fisherman could legally go catch them uh, because they're outside of the reserve. So it's kind of a hard comparison to make. Um, I think reserves are great. Obviously, that's my own opinion. But um, I do think they're great. I do think they're really worthwhile. But we are looking to see if there potentially there are more plastic uh, plastics in fish that are from reserves.
2: So plastics are everywhere. And when we had our discussion earlier, what I wasn't considering is just how everywhere plastics are. So take us a little bit through what you have to go through in your lab to kind of keep plastics out of your samples and tell us a little bit why, you know exactly what the composition of all your clothes is.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, So plastics are truly everywhere. They are in the air you're breathing, they are in your beer and wine, they are in your tap water, they are in your bottled water. um, And they're kind of everywhere and they're kind of hard to get away from. So in my lab, we have a laminar flow hood with a HEPA filter. So this hood, the HEPA filter, tries to take any particles from the air to make it like a sterile or clean environment. And then it actually pushes air out towards you. So instead of regular hoods and labs where you can use a toxic chemical in it and it takes the air away from you, the air is actually being pushed towards us um, to keep inside the hood as clean as possible. So every time we use the hood, we have to turn it on an hour in advance. We have to wipe it all down with ethanol to make sure it's as clean as possible. We have to wear 100% cotton lab coats. And that's why I know exactly what all of my clothing is made of because we want to have organic materials that we're wearing. Um, so I try to wear 100% cotton shirt um, as close to 100% cotton jeans as I can. It's really hard to find sometimes or <laughs> um, another like wool can be used. Um, but just so that we none of our clothing can contaminate our samples. And if potentially a fiber of my shirt does land on the sample, it will hopefully be um, broken down in the one of the steps so we will not see it anymore. Um, And then we also have controls everywhere so we can get background contamination as well.
1: So the the idea of getting plastics out of clothing is one that seems obvious on hindsight to me, but was definitely not obvious when I heard (laughs) it at first. Uh, I learned recently that one of the prime ways that bottles are recycled is that they're shredded and made into fibers to make polyester clothing. And I thought, oh yeah, polyester is by definition a plastic, and (laughs) most of our clothing has polyester in it. So... When you're looking at this sample and it's got, so some of the things you've looked at under the microscope, you can kind of tell where it's come from a little bit, right? Whether it's from a hard plastic or if it's a fiber.
0: We kind of look at, we say it's a fiber or a non-fiber because as you said before, there are microbeads and there are um, other smaller pieces that could look like rubber. So we go fiber and non-fiber.
1: So one of the things that you then do is you sort them by color and kind of rule some things out based on the colors. Could you mm-hmm. say something about that as well?
0: Yeah. So um, as you were saying before, every time you wash clothing, if it's not cotton, or if it's not, oh, every time you wash clothing in general, you lose fibers um, when you wash clothing. So if you could look at your lint in your dryer under microscope, you will see it. And that actually was done by a lab in Toronto recently. They just looked under um, a microscope at some of their clothing, but. Um, Every time you lose it, it goes into your wastewater, and a lot of wastewater treatment plants aren't equipped to actually work with microfibers, so it leaves their wastewater treatment and goes straight out to um, like the ocean or rivers. But a lot of the colors that we're seeing are um, typical clothing colors, and we can't say for sure that they're from clothing because there's no way to kind of track that, but we're seeing a lot of black and gray and white and blue tend to be the most common colors that we see. Um depending on the lab as well, red tends to be up there as well. But those are the four main colors that we see a lot of.
2: So, so far in your lab and your methods, you're looking at things you can see with your naked eye and as well with a microscope, but you have a possible interesting development coming in with a new piece of analytical equipment. Can you briefly touch on that and the kind of advancements that can provide your lab in the future?
0: Yeah, so our lab got funding to get a micro FTIR, um, which is Fournier Transcroscopy Infrared. um,
2: Fourier Transform Infrared Resonance Microscopy or something.
0: Yeah, sorry. Wow. (laughs) Um, But basically what it does is we can put a known plastic material on a microscope slide, and then we can basically log them so that we know this was, you know, the lab gloves that I used, or this was um, the clothing that I wore this day. And then we can compare it to what's in our samples so that we can see what the material is. We can't necessarily tell where it came from, but we can say, you know, this is polypropylene, this is poly- polyethylene, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that is one of the best ways to actually, and only ways to really identify exactly what kind of material you're looking at and if it's plastic or not. So a lot of my Results I have now are only suspected because I haven't been able to verify any of them with this piece of equipment yet.
2: Yeah, the the, the FTIR is really, it's used in a bunch of different fields. It's used in my field a lot, and mm-hmm. it's it gives you like a really nice, uh, what we call like a fingerprint of the organic matter or of the substrate that you're trying to identify. Mm-hmm. And then if, if it's a suspected contaminant, you can actually subtract that signal out of your actual samples that you really want to try and quantify. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have some preliminary results. Uh, yes. Tell us a little bit about those.
0: So again, they're only preliminary because they haven't been looked at under the FTIR yet, which I found out is really cool. It measures the vibrations between the atoms of the material you're looking at, and that's how it can differentiate what you're looking at, which was mind-blown for me. It's, wow. the,
2: it's the distances between all the bonds. And then the if atoms. You, yeah, and then if, if you know all those distances, you yeah. know those. it excites those little vibrations, and then you can kind of back-calculate the distances of every bond coming off of every other bond and it creates this like digital molecular fingerprint. It's wicked.
0: It's the coolest (laughs) thing ever. Um, but yeah, so, um, we are suspected results. Um, and I'm still going through my project. I'm only a first year in, but we suspect that there potentially are more microplastics being ingested in the fish from the reserves than the fish from not the reserves. Um, And that there's also a color breakdown. So we are personally seeing a lot more uh, black than anything else as well for fibers. And we also have only been primarily seeing fibers. Uh, We haven't been seeing a lot of other things.
2: So does fibers mean that it's all polyester shirts? Or what could another potential source of these fibers be coming from?
0: I mean, again, because plastic can break down into the smallest of pieces it could be anything from rope to fishing net to clothing to it even I mean if you think it could essentially be rubber if it gets small enough mm. um is a little bit hard because it breaks down into more of like chunks that I've seen but eventually it has to get down to that size
2: wow um so you kind of always were interested in science growing up. Like looking through microscopes isn't a totally new endeavor for you.
0: Not at all, not <laughs> at all.
2: Do you recall kind of your first experience with science growing up?
0: Um, my One of my most memorable experiences, I was back in the fifth grade and um, we were just pipetting water droplets onto a penny and I thought it was the coolest thing to be able to count how many water droplets I could get on this tiny little penny because even in fifth grade, you're like, this is useless. It's so small. Um, but And I've done everything from that to my undergrad capstone. I was looking for parasites in corals where I was spending hours a day looking under a microscope to see if I could find parasites um, in deep water corals off the uh, coast of Maine.
1: So how did you go from corals to microplastics?
0: I wanted to go to grad school for as long as I can remember. Um, I actually got hooked on marine science back in high school. I took a family trip to Alaska um, and saw, you know, the whales and the bears and the bald eagles and everything imaginable and kind of was like, that's going to be my career path from now on. Um, and when I came time to start looking at grad school, I kind of had every interest in the book. Um, <laughs> I was interested in everything from marine sciences to pharmaceuticals to organic chemistry to biomedical engineering. And I started looking for an advisor because that was some advice that I got was to pick an advisor. Um, And Dr. Brander popped up uh, doing a microplastic and also doing an insecticide study in work. And that just really hooked me um, because I had all the misconceptions about plastic as well that they kind of go away and that recycling is the best option, Um, and plastic is so easy, and I was like, I can't imagine my life without it. And as we started talking and I started reading my papers, I was so intrigued and interested and also saddened by how much damage that plastic can do that I kind of was hooked and immediately started working on it here.
2: So while we were interviewing you before this on-air interview, there was an undergraduate student who happened to overhear us And you and you had described exactly what you you did then, which was, oh, I'm interested in microplastic. I'm interested in marine biology. I'm interested in, you know, environmental toxicology and all these things. Um, And the student came up to you and basically said, I'm interested in all of those things. How can I learn more? Um, Can you tell undergraduate students who are listening, you know, how they could potentially learn more? Or if you have any advice for them, you know, what would you say?
0: Yeah, that was one of the coolest experiences actually. Um, And that's happened a lot, which has been one of the most incredible things as being a grad student is really getting to help and mentor undergraduate students. um, Because I was there a year ago, which is really weird to think of, or a year and a half ago.
2: Right, because you went directly from undergraduate directly to this graduate program here at Oregon State.
0: Correct, yeah. Um, I think my best advice is, first of all, you have to read a lot of papers, so get used to reading them and taking notes on them. But um, trust your instincts And if you want to go to grad school, you will get to grad school, but you have to put the work on the work on along the way. So I had lab tech jobs and I had summer lab tech jobs and I, you know, did our version of Hatfield at my old school and I just got as much um, experience and exposure that I possibly could um, during my time as an undergrad.
2: While you were an undergrad, you also had a, an undergraduate professor who said you can make it. Tell us a little bit about that person.
0: Yeah, so um, I didn't have the best GPA. Um, I tell people, you know, I always worked hard in high school for where the GPA I got, and I was really proud of it. And in uh, my undergrad, I worked really hard and... Theoretically, to a grad student, my GPA was subpar to maybe OK, depending on you know <laughs> your standards. And I kind of went to a teacher and was like, you know, this is what I want to do. And because I worked for him, um, he basically was like, you can do it if you you know work for it. And it was really, really encouraging because when I and please don't compare yourself to other people. But when I compared <laughs> myself to other people, I was like, you know, I don't take tests well. My GPA isn't great. Um, I didn't have a lab tech job for all four years. I didn't have a lab tech job for all four summers. Um, but he really kind of was like, you know, I know how well you work. I know you're, you're, dedicated. Um, he offered to write me letters, which was great. And it was really encouraging because he was always there, um, for a question that I had because he was taking grad students. Um, unfortunately he didn't have funding to take me on, but, um, I really could trust him to get insight and input to kind of my application And um, just how to go about applying for schools.
1: Well, thank you for coming on air and telling us about this super fascinating topic.
0: Thank you guys so much.
1: We have a tradition here that we ask all of our guests to leave us with a song. And I want to know what song you picked and why.
0: Um, I picked the song Happy because... Um, I think my field of study can be really depressing to a lot of people when you think about it because plastics are everywhere and they're so ubiquitous and they make your life easy and people don't believe that it's necessarily a problem. But I truly believe that we still have the opportunity to fix it. So I try to remain happy and tell people that one small thing like getting rid of your plastic straw and buying a metal straw or buying metal, you know, metal utensils, or even a plastic reusable water bottle can make that much of a difference. So I picked the song Happy.
2: Well, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on air. We hope to have more students from your lab join our show. Um, And with that, we will leave you with Pharrell Williams with his song Happy. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please tell your friends about it and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so other podcast peeps can find our show.
0: The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannum. Special thanks to the supporting staff for KBVR that allowed this show and podcast to be possible.
2: The show was started by Jian Kamvar and Joey Holber in 2012. Its hosts include Matt McConnell, Steve Friedman, Mackenzie Smith, Kristen Finch, Adrian Gallo, Lillian Padgett-Cobb, Lori Lutz, Heather Forsythe, Maggie Exton, Scott Classic, Marcus Weinman, Daniel Watkins, and Harrison Steierwalt.
0: To learn about other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, please visit our well-curated website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration.
2: And finally, Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at KBVRID and Facebook at Inspiration Dissemination.
0: Thank you for listening and stay curious, my friends.